0: We're going to be in Acts chapter 4 this morning. We're going to make it all the way from verse 13 to verse 22. So the whole thing you heard read read today. And if you have your Bible open in Acts, you won't have to go anywhere else. You can just stay, stay right there. I will pray for us and then we'll we'll get started. Uh, Lord, we thank you again week by week for bringing us here together um, and for being here with us. We ask you to help us hear and listen and see and understand. And I pray that uh, by your grace, those things that we hear and see and understand, we will uh, bring forth in our lives. You will help us do that. Help me as I preach, Lord, so that what I say will be in keeping with what you have revealed. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you uh, ever, if you find yourself in a, a conversation with a friend, maybe, who is skeptical about, about the Christian faith, And the discussion happens to turn to other religions. He or she might ask you, probably will ask you, something like this. How can you say that your religious belief is the right one and everyone else in the whole world is wrong? Worse, you don't only say that, everyone else is going to hell for being wrong. Is there any belief more arrogant than that? Now, it's difficult to know what to say if you're in a conversation like that because because if you frame it that way, it really does sound pretty arrogant with that frame. But the framing is off. It's like uh, having a nice, wonderful painting by Rembrandt and putting a, a hot pink... Frame with red hearts and unicorns on it. It just, its totally wrong for the picture. It doesn't quite get uh, get the painting. Same thing here. You'd want to maybe ask your friend, "Is it—is it really me saying I'm right and everyone else is wrong, or is it that Jesus says something like that about himself?" The question your friend asks rests on the. Assumption that the world is populated by people who are sincerely looking for the truth about God, but, but who with, with good faith just happen to come on to different answers. If there is even such a truth, it's, it's not clear enough for everyone to come to the same answer. Maybe it's not even knowable. So, so you can't you can't blame people for ending up uh, in different places and not in your place. That's that's the that's the assumption behind your friend's question, and lots of people assume that assumption. So we should ask: Is it true? Is that really how people are? Uh, Jesus, uh, speaking of himself in John chapter John chapter three, says. The light has come in the world. Into the world, that's him. The light is light. I'm the light. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light. It's not according to Jesus that everyone's trying really, really hard to to see the truth, but it's just too fuzzy, and so nobody can quite can quite get it. Jesus says. No one wants to see. The light, the sun is shining brightly, and we've all screwed our eyes shut and tied blindfolds around our heads so that we don't have to see it. Now, if Jesus were just some ancient philosopher, uh, you can take his words with a grain of salt. But he claims to be God. He claims to be the Word made flesh. And maybe if his tomb were not empty... If he just stayed dead like like other men stay dead, then you could dismiss what he says. But the tomb is empty, and and he is risen. risen. And through the Apostle Paul, uh, Jesus has breathed out these words found in in Romans chapter 1. God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. People see since the creation of the world. Yeah. In the things that have been made. So they, and by they he means all human beings, they are without excuse for although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That last line I just read about exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and animals, that, that's God's verdict on the religions of the world. They they aren't innocent, good-faith attempts to strive toward the light. They're bunkers. They're shelters built to suppress the light so that we humans might continue to worship ourselves, gods as as. Worshiping ourselves, more, more images of mortal men, that's what that means. We worship our, ourselves. In fact, uh, Jesus says again through Paul in Romans chapter 3, no one, no one by themselves, no one seeks God. Well then, if that's the way of it, you might ask, and you should ask, how does anyone ever see and believe in Jesus. Well, John, Jesus in John chapter 3 also says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. God has to open your eyes. God has to unplug your ears before you'll hear or, or you'll see. And then you should also ask, well, how does, how does that happen? And we've answered that question many times uh, here, but I'll answer it again uh, through Paul in Romans chapter 10. Faith, that's believing comes through hearing, and, and hearing, the ability to hear, the, the, having the ears open to hear, that comes from the word of Christ. The, the, the truth about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done to save sinners, that's what God uses to pry open eyes and, and, and ears and hearts. So, so when someone asks a question, with a lurid hot pink frame around it don't cower back and 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 shy away you've got to tell the truth forthrightly without a lot of nuance or or, or fogging around don't do that peter and john have just done that for the sanhedrin by what power do you do these things, they had asked. By what power or what name do you do these things, they had asked. And, and that's not a hot pink frame with hearts on it. That's a menacing, hard, cold steel frame with barbs in it. But Peter, you'll notice, minces no words at all. Jesus, he says, has become the, the cornerstone. You, you cast away, the, you builders cast away the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 71 men. Pharisees, Sadducees, priests, scholars, lawyers, nobles, that's, that's the Sanhedrin. And they're seated on 71 chairs, maybe stone chairs, throne-like things, I don't know. And Peter and John are standing right in the, in the, in the, in the middle of a semicircle of these, of these guys, along with the beggar who had been lame, but who's now walking. They'd all been arrested because Peter was preaching that Jesus had risen from the dead, and the Sanhedrin is responsible for putting Jesus to death. So they were arrested. Now, if you want more background than that, you can go back and listen to last week's sermon. We're not going to do that. I'm not going to give you a whole bunch of review. I want to pick up in verse 13. Now, when they saw, that's the the Sanhedrin, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. The most common response to Jesus' teaching in the Gospels, if you read through them, is astonishment. Uh, not just astonishment at the, at the things that he said, the content of what he said, which is astonishing, but at the way he said the things that he said. Uh, the rabbis, it seems, apparently the way they preached is they, they packed their sermons with citations from other rabbis. So typical sermon might go something like, well, uh, Rabbi Joseph says that this passage means this, but then Rabbi Simon says this passage means that, and, and then there's Rabbi Gamaliel. We can't forget Rabbi Gamaliel. He says this passage probably means this, and so on and so on and so on. Now, part of that may have been to show off, look how much I've read. I've, I've read all the rabbis. Uh, but it also might be, and I know this is a preacher, you can't just spout out, spout off your own half baked thoughts of, on the divine. I mean, you want to have some, you want to have some weight behind your, your interpretations, your understandings of the scriptures. You need to lean on other people's readings and understandings of what you're reading because you're human and, and you can, you, you can't see everything clearly. But then, in the midst of a context like that, uh, along comes Jesus saying things like, well, you've heard it said by those other rabbis, but I tell you. And it doesn't go on and and cite rabbi after rabbi after rabbi. He doesn't cite rabbis. And then he says things like, truly, truly, I tell you. And then he goes on. Not citing anyone else. The only thing he cites is scripture. But if you're Jesus, when you cite scripture, you're citing yourself. So he rests all of his teaching on his own authority. So people were astonished. They'd never heard anything like that. Uh, The authorities were especially astonished. Uh, There are people on the Sanhedrin at this point who would no doubt remember the day that Jesus rolled into the temple and started overturning tables and all, all kinds of things. And they were upset by that. So the Sanhedrin sent a delegation to Jesus to ask, by what authority do you do these things? The very same kind of question they asked, they asked, they asked Peter and John. Um, and, and, and Jesus, you know, Jesus didn't go through the rabbinical schools. He's not licensed to preach in the temple. And so they're, who, who do you think you are is what they're asking. Well, the question was hardly out of their lips before Jesus turns the whole thing around on them, just like he turned the tables over. I'll answer you if you tell me whether John the Baptist's ministry was from God or, or from man. And you know if you've read the text, they can't answer. I won't go into why they can't answer. They just can't answer. They won't answer. And Jesus says, okay, I'm, I'm not answering you either. And he just goes on preaching, which would have probably surprised them because these guys think it's their temple and they're in charge of it. And they think they're they're the ones who give people license to speak or not speak. And Jesus just said, hey, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I'm not going to answer your question. And I'm going to keep preaching. As if it's his house. And it goes on from there. And in the end, they, they had to find a way to get rid of him. And they, they had him crucified to shut him up. But then here are these two men, John, and, John and, and Peter. And they're doing the very same thing. Speaking in the same way, in the same place, in his name, in Jesus' name. And they're speaking as if they have every right to speak about Jesus in the temple. As if, again, it's Jesus' house. Uh, Sanhedrin is, is right in what they say here about Peter and John. They've, uh, they've received no formal training, uh, no, no religious training. They're common, common men, um, but they've been with Jesus. That, that's Jesus' boldness they're hearing. That's Jesus' authority that they're They're sensing. They've heard it before. The Sanhedrin has heard it before. They recognize it. But, verse 14, seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in, in opposition. Now, if you remember, legally connecting John and Peter to Jesus was the original point. It was the whole reason that they had these guys arrested and had brought them up for, for a hearing. Because... The Sanhedrin, if you remember, I just mentioned it, found Jesus guilty of blasphemy. And so if, they, if they're thinking, if we can connect John and Peter with Jesus, we can also condemn them for blasphemy. But the Sanhedrin failed to take into account uh, the glaring fact that's you know, standing right there in their midst, the beggar, who had never walked in his entire life, who's now walking and standing and looking at him. Thousands of people, if it was just the Sanhedrin, it'd be one thing, but thousands of people have seen this man they knew to be lame walking around. The cat's out of the bag. All Jerusalem by now knows that this man has been raised in Jesus' name. And so now what do they do? Well, now what does the Sanhedrin do? They're in a real bind. They, they can't follow the original plan and condemn Peter and John as blasphemers. The people wouldn't stand for it. And, and, and the walking lame man is living testimony to, to the fact that they weren't you know, blasphemers, that there's something to what they're saying about Jesus. What, what a bind they've gotten themselves into. It doesn't seem to be, there's any, how how do they get out of this? How do do they maneuver their way out of this? Well, there is a way out, if you remember. Uh, Peter's already given them a way out. There's a name. There's one name under heaven by which you must be saved. That's their way out. Let's see if they take it bright light has, has penetrated their bunker. Now, I, I, I hope, I'm not confident about this, but I hope that with a miracle like that staring me in the face and the, the unnatural but familiar Jesus-like boldness and authority from Peter and, and John, I hope that i at least begin to wonder, maybe we've made a big mistake Maybe we've been wrong about Jesus all along. Maybe we've been wrong about about him. But then consider the consequences of the Sanhedrin admitting that. Confessing that. Because because confessing that would mean confessing that we, the, the leaders of Israel, trained, deep knowledge of the scriptures We have put our Messiah to death. That's what that would mean. I don't think think this has to do with how smart that people are on the Sanhedrin, whether they're intelligent or not. Of course, they're they're brilliant men. This is not about them figuring out, trying to weigh the evidence to see whether Peter and and, and John are right. Uh, What they're wrestling with is a matter of the heart. They don't even deny that a miracle happened, as we're going to see. They can't. It, it, it's the implications. It's, it's the implications of the miracle. That's what they can't bear. If, if Jesus is in fact risen, their whole world crumbles. And that's true not just for them. We should take note of this. If, if you follow the, the implications and the evidence and receive the truth about Jesus and then receive him, you're going to lose your whole life. You're going to lose yourself. That's why lots of people shove everything down and grab onto any reason they can to ignore or deny or laugh at the whole thing. But if you would only confess, I've been wrong my whole life. And run to him and trust in him, you'll die. You will die. But you'll live like you've never lived before. You will lose yourself and find that it's the happiest loss you've ever lost because you gain Jesus and eternal life and light and beauty and truth and everything that's good. So again, let's see what the Sanhedrin does. Verses 15 through 17. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Now you might ask just as a technical question, how do we know anything about this discussion because uh, Peter and John are kicked out, so how do, how do we know what happened in there? So well, if you try to get two or three people to keep a secret, you know that, that's hard enough but but try keep getting seventy one people to to keep a secret. It may have leaked out because of that. People just can't keep secrets, but there's also a fair chance that that Saul of Tarsus uh, Paul is is there. Uh, he writes later, in, or he says later in Acts 20, chapter 26, that he cast his vote to condemn Christians, which that voting might, seems to suggest that he's a Sanhedrin member. Maybe Nicodemus is there, maybe Joseph of Arimathea is there, maybe both of them. Who knows? There's, there's lots of good ways, lots of ways this news could have, could have, come, could have come to Luke. Well, however that happened, what these men say is fascinating. First, they admit to one another, the whole city knows that a notable sign, not, uh, not a magic trick, not a scam, a notable sign has been performed, and there's no way we can deny it. We can't tell the people who've seen it with their own eyes that they didn't see it. I wish some of our leaders would think that way sometimes. But we can't tell these people that they're not seeing what they've seen. They've seen it. We can't deny it happened. But then second, since we cannot deny it, there's only one thing we can do. Use the authority of our office to make them be quiet. Shut up, they argued. Now there is one thing they could have done under other circumstances... And had they done it and these other circumstances, uh, it would have solved everything for them. Just head out over to Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Because everyone knows that Jesus was buried there. And, and exhume the corpse. And display it publicly. And the whole thing, the whole Christian thing collapses. If they could do that, they'd do it. But they can't. They know that tomb is empty, and I'm sure they've contrived all kinds of explanations uh, for that empty tomb, but I think at this point, it's got to be hard. It's got to be hard to keep hold of those explanations in light of the notable sign standing right before them in Jesus' name. It may be that, that, that it being so hard to hold on to the explanations and to, to keep hold of of unbelief here. That may be why there's zero discussion of the content of, of Peter's words, even amongst themselves. Not, they don't talk, they, they arrested Peter and John because they were preaching about the resurrection, but they don't mention the resurrection at all, either in the, in the trial or in their own personal discussions. It's like people are trying to avoid something. It's really tragic. I mean, we, we don't want to get a, a caricatured view, a cartoonish view, of, of, these, of these men. They're like people starving of thirst in a desert and stumbling onto an oasis, but they're refusing to drink because they've persuaded themselves that it's a mirage. Not going to drink. For all, for all of their evil foolishness, and there's a lot of evil foolishness there, these, these people are human beings with souls knit together by Jesus, bodies knit together by Jesus, in their mother's wombs. And just, if, if a, a single one of them, Caiaphas, any of them, would ask Peter, can I really be forgiven? Can I really be pardoned? And then seek that. Well, Jesus' pardon and, and mercy and forgiveness would pour down like a, a rushing stream, but they're, they're not They're not asking. Not seeking. So they called them, verse 18. They called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Uh, This is a gag order. A a complete teaching ban from the highest court in Israel. What do you do? if You're Peter. What do you do if you're John? Now, I, I suppose they could say, yes, sirs, and and go out. They could obey. In fact, I mean, Jesus had a lot to say about that sort of thing. Jesus said, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. And that would include taxes and honor and respect and obedience to laws and commands. Uh, Later, uh, Paul writes in Romans 13, let every person be subject To the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. It's pretty clear. So Peter and John could maybe pass on the duty of preaching to the other ten apostles and obey this very clear command by the Sanhedrin to not speak. The gospel would still be preached, and others could take up the baton of doing that. They don't have to do it themselves. That's definitely the safest route here. A formal order like this from the Sanhedrin comes with teeth. If they disobey, they could be beaten or even stoned to death. And they've got, they've got, they've got things to live for. They've got, well, at least, I'm not sure if John is married. We're not told much about his family. But, but Peter, Peter's married, probably has children now. What happens to them? Do I risk making my wife a widow? Do I, do I leave my children without their father? Is that even a responsible choice to make in this situation? When, you, when you're in situations like this, and I know, it's, there, there, there are many ways to justify silence or obedience. Now, I, I'm sure you've all read about this. Um, I don't know much about hockey because I don't I'm not, don't know much about sports. But, um, but like I said, you probably read about it. The, the Philadelphia Flyers had a, a pride celebration. I'm not sure why sports teams have to have pride celebrations. But anyway, there's a pride celebration uh, for the Philadelphia Flyers. And the players were told to put on jerseys with the rainbow uh, stuff on it for pregame warm-ups. And, you know, it just seems like a small thing, doesn't it? Just, just wear the jersey. Avoid the controversy. No need for conflict. But one player, um, I'm, I'm going I'm to mess up his name, Ivan Provorov, uh, refused to do it. And he said that he refused to do it because he's a Christian. The Media people, a lot of them anyway, lost their minds, if you were watching. <laughs> Several um, demanded that the NHL, the National Hockey League, Discipline him. I mean, fire him. Wear wear the rainbow, celebrate pride, or lose your job. But see, uh, uh, love, Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 13, love never rejoices at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Uh, Wearing that jersey, going to that wedding, Celebrating that parade is to rejoice at wrongdoing. Love never does that because sin or wrongdoing destroys people. Uh, Jesus, and this is good and true, Jesus commands you and me to submit to those in authority over you, your employers, your teachers, uh, bishops, governors, uh, judges, children to parents, wives to husbands, but... Submission to human authority always has a limit. Always. What's the limit? Oh, Peter and John show us here. Verse 19. Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must be the judge. For we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. Jesus told his apostles in Luke chapter 24, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's an appointment. It's a divine appointment. You will be my witnesses. And then in Matthew's gospel in chapter 28, Jesus issues a directive, a command to the entire church, not just the apostles. All authority in heaven and on earth, he says, has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, teaching them. It requires words, teaching them all that I have commanded you. There's there's no qualifications to what Jesus has instructed us and what he's instructed them to do. There's no nuance. There's no shade shade of gray. He He issued a direct command to his apostles and to us. You need to speak in my name. Now, the Sanhedrin members, they have been divinely appointed to be authorities for Israelites. Under normal circumstances, their decisions carry God's authority. And even Jesus said to listen to them because of that. But their authority derives from God. And God, the author of life, Jesus said, proclaim my name everywhere. So when the Sanhedrin says, shut up about Jesus, the order, that command is null and void the moment it's issued. It has no authority at that point. No leader, no ruler, no boss, no parent or husband or whatever kind of authority there is, has the authority to command you to disobey God. Never. And when they try, and they'll try, respectfully, politely, humbly, refuse. We won't do it, says Peter and John. They could say, you know, yes, sir, and go off and just do it anyway. That would get them out of the bind, right? But they don't even lie. We're telling you right here, while you're sitting on your 71 thrones and you could put us to death, we're telling you right here, we are not going to obey what you say. Is this wise? Is it safe? Is it prudent? The Sanhedrin can put them to death. Yes. But Jesus will receive them, and one day he'll raise them up again. The Sanhedrin can confiscate all of their stuff. Yes. But Jesus owns everything and he says, don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear. Seek God's kingdom and his righteousness first and all these things will be added to you. They can beat them and revile them and try to humiliate them. Fine. Good, in fact. What happens to you, or when that happens to you, Jesus promises your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets. The consequences of this might bring pain to Peter's wife and and his his children. They are Christians too. And they have the same Jesus and the same promises. So, So really, if you think about it, what can the Sanhedrin do here? It looks like it looks to me that the Sanhedrin is they're they're really the prisoners in this situation. Fear of the crowds, fear of words, fear of Jesus' name being preached, fear of what they might lose. They're in prison. But the Christian, you, what can anyone do to the Christian? They put you in jail. They fire you. They take away your building. They remove your tax-exempt status. They disinvite you to the party or to the club. They kick you off the team. Who cares? You have Jesus. And in him, you have eternal life. And you have all things that are worth having. And he has promised to take care of you now and forever. You are the freest people in the entire world. You are free. Because Jesus has set you free. Now as I'm preaching this. Maybe a cloud of um, shame. Or guilt. Has started to form in your heart. and In your mind. Because you remember. The last time that you were called upon. To speak. In Jesus' name. And you remember that. Instead of that, uh, maybe you you put the little flag sticker on your desk, or you kept your mouth shut when you should have spoken, or you affirmed some lie that you shouldn't have affirmed because you were afraid. I could have spoken the truth and I, I didn't. Can I even call myself a Christian, you might be asking yourself? Well, I don't know what kind of compromise you made if you made one, but I'll bet it wasn't like Peter publicly asking God to damn him if he even knew who this Jesus was. Here's what you do you go to Jesus in prayer and you confess to him. Tell him what you did or what you didn't do, tell him everything. And here's his promise. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's what the cross is all about. The cross still counts for you as a Christian. And then ask Jesus to help you and to give you his strength and his boldness and his courage next time it comes up. Now, uh, when they had finished, when they further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Uh, Luke, the, the doctor, physician, uh, makes sure to tell us how old the guy was, because it's probably remarkable to him that this happened for a 40-year-old 40, 40 guy. People over 40 aren't usually gaining extraordinary new physical abilities doesn't quite happen. Men do gain some physical abilities. N- nose hair starts growing really fast, and ear hair starts growing really fast, and, and most people over 40 gain the extraordinary ability to gain weight super fast, but that's about it. We don't gain too much more other than that. If you've never walked and you're over 40, you don't just get up and start and start walking. That's what's remarkable and magnificent about this particular miracle. And Jerusalem knows That this man was healed by Jesus' power and authority, and they are praising God for it. And it's exactly, if you think about it, this is exactly what the Sanhedrin hoped to avoid when they arrested them in the first place. The exact thing they wanted to prevent has happened. But pay attention, nevertheless, to the threats. Where there is a will, there is a way, and there's a lot of will behind those threats. And by the time we get to chapter 7, uh, the Sanhedrin will have found a way. There's going to be some blood spilled. But for now, the whole city stands, stands between the Sanhedrin and those threats because in the, churches, the church is beloved at this point and the church is popular, and that's wonderful. But it's also dangerous because it, that can be intoxicating when I was in junior high, I guess it's middle school now, I would do anything I had to do to be popular. And then once people started liking me, I would do anything I could to keep them liking me. So I liked being popular if I could get it. And that's not just junior high stuff. That's just middle school stuff. The church can be so eager to have Gen Z filling our pews or young families or executives or for good press on the outside that to, to gain it or to keep it will willingly... Do what the Sanhedrin tried to force Peter and John to do. Shut up. Not say what needs to be said. Stay silent when Jesus would have us speak. So, in the coming weeks, we're going to see how the early church handles its fame. Meanwhile, we can pray that loved or hated, sought after or ignored, that we will that we will obey God and not man, and never stop speaking of what we have seen and heard. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for uh, the, brave, the bravery and the courage that you gave to John and to Peter, and we ask that you might give us that bravery and courage too. Help us to, to speak the truth, um, not in a harsh and, and mean way or disrespectful way, but in a way that will commend, uh, commend and glorify your son Jesus um, in every point in time when we're called to do so. Um, I pray, Lord, for those who might be here or elsewhere who have uh, buried themselves in, in a bunker and are trying to hide from your light, that you would use the people in this room, use your word uh, to p- penetrate that, that dark place and bring that person to faith in your son. We pray this in Jesus' name.